Hey, my name is uh, Reverend Mav. Um, I call myself Rev Mav. I'm a deacon in the Anglican Catholic Church. And thank you for uh, joining in to the host Eucharistic and Hipster Talk um, a podcast. This is a podcast where we speak about theology, philosophy, social issues, and some geeky things, I guess, like gaming, music, and whatever. So, um... I, I apologize for releasing this episode now. Uh, what you're going to be hearing today is a recording that I did on Skype with a friend of mine who actually just recently got confirmed. I did this last year, but it t it's taken so much time to actually uh, sit down and actually do this. So the editing isn't perfect, but I hope that you appreciate and, and listen to this dialogue I have with my friend uh, Christopher Barber, who uh, has recently uh, joined the Anglican Communion. He's he's in the ACNA. Um, I'm in the ACC, which is the Anglican Catholic Church, the original province. And I am not currently in South Africa. I'm part of the Diocese of the West. Um, I'm, I'm South African, and right now I am teaching English in South Korea. Um, Hopefully in the future I'll be having more episodes out and also quite soon I'll be introducing you to Caleb Mullins uh, who is another Anglican friend of mine also in the ACNA um, from the Anglo-Catholic Persuasion and he's actually a postulant um, for the diaconate so um, I you know uh, was ordained uh, last year um, to the to the order of deacons so um, on this podcast we speak about theology and all of that kind of stuff I really hope that you enjoy this dialogue the quality might not be as good but uh, yeah uh, thank you for joining and I hope you enjoy the show Christopher Barber. Well, 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 what is your full name? Christopher Daniel Barber, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay, that's... Yeah, so, Christopher, uh, before we get into, like, why you became an Anglican, would you want to run us down who you are, you know, what are you studying, you know, sure. are you working? Where so are you in I, life? I am at an interesting point in life. Um... I'm 21 years old. I did two years at a small college in rural New Mexico, which is a state in the United States. Um, but that financially didn't work out because it was becoming very expensive. And so I'm um, with my folks again. I'm, I am working. I'm doing some substitute teaching and some other things. Yeah. Um, and I'm just trying to save up money. Yes, at the moment. Okay. What are you teaching? Um, I've done a lot of stuff. I've done like uh, I've coached some PE. I've done some history classes. I mean, so it's it's whatever they want you to do, honestly. Okay. Um, and so, but um, and I'm a, I I study music, by the way. I'm a trumpet player. Okay. My primary area of study in college is music, and I'll be back in school this time next year. Uh, most likely, and I'll finish my last two years from there. And then um, if I get a master's degree, which I do plan on, it'll either be in trumpet performance or that'll be the moment I choose to go to seminary. So Okay, you know. that's nice. That's cool. Yeah. So, yeah, so, like, that, that that's what you were doing and stuff. So before we get into, like, obviously the... the the, your Anglican profession of faith. You were Lutheran at one stage. Uh, I was. When, when did you become a Christian? Were you were you raised as a Christian? You know how how did that work out? 
Oh yeah, I was raised as a Christian uh, my whole life. Uh, I've been reading the scriptures since I was probably four or five years old, very small. And both my parents are faithful Christians. They've also become Anglicans, okay? And so has my little brother. He was baptized and chrismated as an Anglican. So my brother is arguing, he's a cradle Anglican now. Um, so, you know, that's, that's really cool. And it, I, I, I'm grateful to have come from a family who was Christian, though for the longest time we were non-denominational evangelicals, you know. Oh, Baptists. Going along yeah. Yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and if I can get into my Lutheran journey for a little bit, I started reading this thing called the, the Church Fathers, okay? And I started, <laughs> uh -oh. I started uh, well, let me backtrack just a little bit. I had a really tragic experience my senior year of, my last year of high school, my last year of secondary education before college, if you will. Uh, and I became so depressed. I became... I, I want to say nearly suicidal, though I really didn't have the means to carry it out. I spent a week in a mental hospital, uh, and that was a month before I enrolled in the university. And so really hard time. That made me question my Christian faith, and I began to research. That's what led me to read things, read scripture deeper, read the fathers deeper. Uh, and I started reading what the fathers wrote about the sacraments, about holy baptism and how it saves the soul and, and, and washes yeah, away. Yeah, we go. And then... You know, how the Eucharist is, is upon consecration, like St. Irenaeus says, when uh, the elements receive the word of God, they become the body and blood of Christ. And I'm just like, I, I, I looked to myself and I was like, okay, there's a problem here. And it's probably not a problem with the fathers. It's probably a problem with me. Uh, and for a little bit, and I say just a little bit, I, I identified as high church reformed. Like I thought that I could uh, identify as high church reform to just disagree with the fathers here and there because I had a position on baptism yeah. and it just didn't work. I was like, none of them held this kind of view. And so I went to my local Lutheran church. I was catechized very well. I was received and I was a Lutheran for about nine ish months. And it was a very good experience. I had a very high mm -hmm. church liturgical parish. The Eucharist was taken extremely seriously. My Lutheran pastor even did, uh, private confession with me. I mean, so I even had a father confessor as a Lutheran. And so, I mean, it really made the transition to high church Anglicanism extremely easy because the only other things that I was affirming that I hadn't affirmed before was seven sacraments, apostolic succession, and to a point invocation of the saints. And that was kind of, you know, I know a lot of Anglicans out there are going to be like, invocation of the saints. Oh no, he's a papist. No, don't worry. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I mean, I can I can sympathize with your journey. I was raised uh, Pentecostal, evangelical, uh, took my faith really seriously, and the same thing pretty much happened to me. I started taking my faith seriously, and I realized that what I'd been taught about everything was completely wrong. And I think I can say that now. I think it is wrong, because no one... I mean, was there any, uh, like drawing from my experience for you, was there any point at which you thought, well, th this doesn't sound right, or th this is hard for me to get over what I know? Um, um, in a certain sense, yes, especially my senior year of high school, when we were going to a more charismatic church that was talking about speaking in tongues. And what kind of set off my whole depression was like, I went up there, when they were talking about receiving the gift of tongues, I said that kind of with quotations. Um, yeah. And I had some hands laid on me. I uttered some s syllables. I have no idea what they were. And I, I yeah. it was definitely was fours. And that's what made me think. Let me kind of give you the inside story on, on that whole depression thing. Um, I began to think that because of this, and this is, this is what the mindset of, of Pentecostalism can lead to, Okay, it, it yeah. I thought that I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and I thought I was going to hell, and I thought I should, and that because of that, I should either end my life or just give up on trying. So, it, it quite literally, Pentecostalism nearly made me go insane. So, can't say Classical I have... story, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and so, um, and I'm so glad that God brought me out of that. And so, yeah, there was a point where I, I looked at things and I said, okay, I don't know what the problem is, but something's wrong. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think you know uh, because that 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 for me was a was an issue. Now I can't say I'm completely cessationist on that on that count. I'm not my, a complete cessationist yeah, either. Yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm a charismatic either. But I think uh, for me, I had a lot of experiences with. Uh, with God, I think, in the charismatic movement. But I don't think it was because of it. Um, I think it was in spite of it. Um, and I think we can attest to the fact that the early church did push this thing about uh, experience with God and stuff. But, yeah, you know, just just, just listening l l listening to that. Um, no, like, I mean... What, what, yeah, yeah. You think about the patristic age... And there are certainly a lot of mystics. Mm -hmm. You have people like St. Anthony the Great, who was a monk. Yeah. Yep. Who has these crazy experiences in caves with the devil and things like this. Um, mm -hmm. You have, um, I would say, St. Macarius the Great, who was another monastic, had similar experiences that I am not as familiar with him. Um, and you think about the writings of the Cappadocian Fathers. Uh, St. Gregory yeah. of Nyssa, St. Gregory Nazianzus, and St. Basil the Great, mm -hmm. they kind of have this idea of mystical contemplation of God. Uh, so it's not unchristian to be a mystic, but yeah. I think that when you begin to base your mystical experience outside of the sacramental and liturgical life of the church, that's when it begins to become dangerous. Oh yeah, and I and I think this is probably why I think for both of us because I mean I told you I wasn't in a Lutheran church, but Lutheran thought did lead me, you know, to where I where I am today. In Lutheranism, I think there's a, like a proper emphasis on the means of grace as a way as a means of assurance, um, as a means of experiencing God, as to where in Charismaticism you really you really don't have it. It's more like a wishy washy kind of, you know, if I'm not crying, you know, then I'm probably not filled with the Holy Spirit kind of thing. As to where with Lutheran thought and a lot more of the sacramental traditions given me because I have physical proof. I have a physical right. indication. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, like, obviously, I would think that's based in the incarnation. Do you have anything to add to that? Yes. Sacramental theology is based on the reality of the Incarnation, okay? Mm -hmm. God assumed human flesh. Christ, Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God, took to himself a human nature. He was fully man and he was fully God. And because the divine took on that which was material and that which was human, the means of redemption in yeah. themselves are human. Because Christ had a human body. He had true human flesh. And anyone who denies this, like St. John says, is an antichrist. You know, whoever denies yeah. that Jesus Christ is cometh in the flesh is, is an antichrist. And this is why you have people like St. Athanasius when they write on the Incarnation saying that this was kind of the way that God chose to redeem mankind was himself to suffer and die for us. Yeah. And we see in the fathers this talk about a certain moment of the crucifixion when the roman centurion a roman soldier takes the spear and puts it into christ's side and water and blood come out well the church fathers see that as kind of two things one the beginning of of the church of the life of the church two uh representing kind of the two chief sacraments of the church holy baptism mm -hmm. in the water and obviously the blood flowing from his body the holy eucharist and you know, the fathers saw salvation definitely as a process. It wasn't something that happened overnight. Um, and obviously, the Christian life begins in baptism, when all yeah. original and actual sin is washed away. By the way, my position on original sin is not inherited guilt. It's more of like yeah. the death and corruption type thing. Um, yeah. and, then, and then as you grow into Christ, because you put on Christ in baptism— what the Eucharist does it'll, is it's, it's your food, right? Yeah. It'll, it feeds you spiritually, and it sustains you your entire life. And so, and, and God in the sacraments uses material means, just like Amen. the human nature of Christ was material. He uses 
material means to bring us grace. He uses breath. It's like C.S. Lewis said that you may think it's it's stupid, but God saw fit to use bread and wine to communicate himself to you. So, you know, um, you know, get, get, getting to that, because I think um, and, and I mean, I'm burning to your your I mean, obviously, uh, I think when you be, when you became Lutheran and now as a as an Anglican or Anglo Catholic or however you you would like to identify yourself, I think. So do you ever find it frustrating to hear some of the objections to what you now hold to? Because, I mean, do, have, do you ever have, have uh, contact with, with Baptists or Charismatics who would, you know, obviously object to this idea? Well, if baptism saves, then we saved by our works. Or if the Eucharist can have that power, then, you know, you know, you know what the, what the kind, kinds of... Because, yes, I mean, I... Yeah, yeah, what do you think about those? <laughs> Okay, I think a lot of the evangelical opposition to Lutheran, Anglo-Catholic, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, just historic Christian uh, sacramental theology is simply ignorance. I don't always think it's malice. Now, I've seen malice yeah. before, and I've of seen course. people who know what we believe in, and they just want to call us heretics and, and, and say we're not Christian because we believe that God gives us a gift of holy baptism. I... Uh, when it comes to baptism, the first thing you mentioned that that they'll say, "Oh, baptism is a work; it's something we've done." Okay, I'll cite—I could cite Luther on this because he's really, really, really good on this point. But I'll actually yeah. cite a church father who I read yesterday, Saint Optatus. Okay, he mm -hmm. was a contemporary of, of Augustine. Uh, he was a bishop in North Africa, and he wrote against the Donatists, a group of people who would rebaptize people because they saw that the efficacy of baptism or of any sacrament depended upon the worthiness of the minister and something that he says okay. is that yeah what he says is that what god does in baptism through the minister it's really god doing it it is the holy trinity who baptizes and the man is kind of just this agent through which this redemption is brought about but the efficacy yeah and the power of baptism it's what god does for us it's nothing we've done for God. In fact, he says, Donatists, why do you take credit in baptism for that which God has done? And so, you know, and then the Eucharist. Well, you know, if someone can ask me, I'll, I'll say what Luther said to Zwingli at the Marburg Colloquy. If someone can tell me, fully explain how Christ could have a fully human and a fully divine nature united in one person without mingling, separation, or confusion, if you can explain that to me, then I'll explain to you how bread and one can become the body and blood of Christ. Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to like comment on what you said. Like for those who aren't familiar with the terminology Christopher's using, um, what Christopher's saying is because the Donatist con controversy, as I understand it, had to do about the validity of ministers, the priests, and whether or not, um, let's say uh, a priest wasn't, wasn't really a believer. He was an intruder. Was his uh, his priesthood or his ministry was it valid? And so, was the baptism and uh, the giving of the Eucharist was that valid? And obviously, we would say it is because we don't think those things are the works of man. We think that they are actually things that God is doing to us. When I go into the liturgy, if I go into the divine mass. Um, when when the priest gives me that bread and wine, it is God acting through those people, and it's not based on the moral state of that person. That's the beauty of this, and that that was obviously settled in in Augustine's time. So so yeah, uh, yeah, like, but leading from that, because I mean, there's obviously the other urgent question that amongst Anglicans we we still have some in-house debates. Yes, uh, we do. Uh, Re reformed Anglicans, the, the old high churchmen, the Anglo-Catholics and stuff, even though many times we find ourselves in communion with each other. And I mean the ACNA, uh, the traditional Anglican communion, the continuing churches. <laughs> I mean, we all have our own take on some issues. But for you personally, because I mean, I changed my position as I was changing from being more reformed, having more of a Dutch reformed or reformed Reformed Baptist, which came before that view. What do you think is the importance of the doctrine of justification by faith alone? I 
hold to it in a certain sense, okay? I believe that ultimately salvation is a work of God, that there, that the works of, it's kind of like St. Paul says, the works, what I do, you know, it's not who I live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Anything mm -hmm. we do, credit automatically goes to God. Now, we still need to assent and cooperate, okay, with the things that God gives us. We're not robots. We're not automatons. Yeah. You know, and I, I, um, a very good Anglo-Catholic writer by the name of Vernon Staley in his book, The Catholic Religion, actually in his appendices, yeah. so it's, you have, kind of have to go hunting for it. But in the very back of the book, he actually distinguishes between justification and sanctification. Uh, and Dr. Edward Pusey, one of the Tractarian Fathers of the Oxford Movement, um, has this comment about baptism where he says that through baptism we should think no other thing than that, that we are the very creatures of God's own hands. Uh, kind of going back to what we were just talking about. But I think where some people like Lutherans who hold to Sola, their version of Sola Fide, would, I would disagree with, is the, the grace that justifies has to be a real grace that ontologically changes who you are. And it's not just God looking at you in a mere legal status. It is something that deifies you, right? It's yeah. theosis. It's something mm -hmm. that allows you to partake in the divine nature, like St. Peter says. And E.L. Mascal, and his, he's, he was a 20th century Anglo-Catholic Thomist, said something to this effect as well. He's, he said, well, who's right, Rome or Luther? Is it imputation or impartation? Well, both. What he said yeah. was a true imputation is an imputation that comes with an impartation yeah. of grace. And so I don't see justification as being this, this merely legal thing. I see it as being an ontological thing. Uh, it is forensic in the sense that we are declared forgiven for Christ's yeah. sake. No yeah. Christian can deny that. But if you're just telling me that, you know, we, we can't talk about, in sanctification especially, cooperation with grace, uh, then, I'm, then you and I are going to have a disagreement. So, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I don't, I don't like. As far as I understand you, I don't think I disagree with anything. Um, I mean, I mean, I think we we've spoken about this like off air that uh, for me, uh, I couldn't become a Lutheran because of this issue. Uh, you you know that. Uh, so um, it's not even that I because uh, yeah, and I think most people uh, they they don't understand that when they when the year you say things like I believe in faith alone, they think that that must mean that you don't believe in sacram the sacraments being a means of grace. That's what some people think. Um, and so even though there's a difference between what more of the high end Anglicans mean what they say and, and all of that. I'm not going to go go through that. But yeah, I think we can say this is faith, faith alone saves. But I think anyone who holds to that view needs to obviously what we mean by that. What what we would mean by that is, yeah. My view yeah. of sola fide is not exactly a Lutheran view. But I also take issue with the Roman Catholic view of like condign and congruous merit. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, that you you can merit their graces of justification when you're in a state of grace, and and Roman Catholic apologists, as well as the documents of the Council of Trent, will make it clear that any grace that is merited is first of all the foundation is Christ's merit, and I, I applaud them for that. Okay, I don't yeah. think our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters are Pelagians like some people think. Yeah. I think you know, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> But I, I don't, kind of like the Eastern Orthodox in a certain sense, I don't see there being these strict categories of merit in the Christian life. I don't think that the Eastern Fathers necessarily saw this as much. Uh, I think they saw it simply more as a process of becoming yeah. by grace what God is by nature, and that is divine. Yeah. You know, um, you know, and, and I think now we—if you—if you're—if it please you, we should get into kind of why I became Anglican, because I think that that's go for it. I think we all burning to know that. <laughs> so okay, Lutheranism—it kind of started with with a problem in American Lutheranism. I was in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is a mostly conservative body, but man, it's got some people coming out from under the rocks that are very liberal. Uh, not just politically, but theologically. Okay? Uh, are you serious? 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, like for, take for example the last synodical presidential election. Yeah, we don't call the LCMS doesn't call their their presiding person an archbishop. They call him a president, and it's like what you've said. It sounds kind of Mormon. Um, and I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say that to, to make fun of them, but it just does. It does sound weird. But the conservative candidate only won fifty one percent of the vote. When previous elections, he would have won much more. So that shows. Wait, was this LCMS? Yes. So, uh, so just for for people who are not familiar with the with the LCMS, we don't have the LCMS over here. Uh, that's the Lutheran the, Church, Church Missouri, Missouri Synod. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Continue. No, and they're like I said, they're mostly conservative. The problem becomes this: that you say that you're a confessional Lutheran, and by the way, the Lutheran confessions say some great things. They say that we celebrate the Mass every Sunday. We give Holy Communion on every Sunday, every feast day, and other days also as people ask for it. Um, and they, they even said against Rome that we celebrate the Mass better than Rome celebrates it. Mm -hmm. But then you go, and this problem is in Anglicanism too, so I haven't completely escaped it. But um, the LCMS was becoming infected with, with contemporary worship. My parish wasn't. Oh, uh, but as yeah. as someone, as someone who thinks he might be called to priestly ministry one day, and of course, only God knows if I'll be a priest one day. I'm not going to force it. If it's yeah. His will, He'll show that to me, and I will gladly take that up when and if that time comes. But I just thought, if I'm clergy, can I abide in this synod and in the thing that I told myself was no. Would I want to raise my children here? Maybe not, because I, I might have had a good par parish when I was there in college, okay, where I was at that school. But if I move somewhere with my future wife, let's say I moved to upstate New York, where um, an Anglican priest by the name of Father Wade Miller, who was once also an LCMS pastor, used to uh, preach, you know, he has what he calls the Pentecostal Lutherans, who in their liturgy speak in tongues. Um, and so oh. <laughs> the other part of it was this, was that I looked at issues like apostolic succession, like how can I be sure that the Eucharist, which my pastor or my priest is presiding over is valid? How do I know objectively that I am receiving the body and blood of Christ? Okay. Mm -hmm. How do I know? You know, and then I began to think about like, well, what about marriage? Because Lutherans only have basically three sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, and confession, and even confession is debated, so it's two or three, depending on who you talk to. Um, what about marriage? Isn't marriage a sacrament? What about when yeah. James says to anoint the sick? What about, you know, Yeah. and I studied seven sacraments, and I became convinced of seven sacraments of apostolic succession, and of kind of a, what I would say is a more, almost a more Catholic view of the sacraments and of the sacramental life of the church. Though I think our Lutheran brothers and sisters have much to offer us in terms of, like you said, the the assurance that the sacraments bring, certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other thing is that it, it wasn't necessarily a truly nuanced view of Sola Scriptura, okay? But I, 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 I came to believe that there are traditions that the church has that are not written in Scripture that are still kind of authoritative you know yeah. i believe that you know kind of I ecclesiastical also, authority yeah. right i also came to believe in the seven ecumenical councils that everything that they teach is fully catholic and apostolic and that any christian who studies church history i believe is obliged to affirm everything that they say um and so it was a matter of kind of looking again at church history it was a matter of seeing areas uh, of Lutheranism that I just don't think will survive for yeah. too long. And I don't know if Anglicanism will either. That's kind of the gamble I'm taking. But for some odd reason, I'm just, I just have faith that continuing Anglicanism and um, other various groups of high church Anglicans, because not all high church Anglicans are continuing, because I myself am not a continuing yeah. Anglican, but mm -hmm. there's no continuing parish near me. Um, okay. But I am in a, in a diocese that believes in seven sacraments, apostolic succession, real presence. Like, we have everything we need. And there's yeah. no women priests. 
Like we're really good. Um, yeah. And so it, um, I thought I was, I was going to speak a little more fluidly here. Uh, so forgive me about that. But really the reason I became Anglican is the number of sacraments, the historic authority of the church, okay? And um, seeing that were I to want to raise my children in a communion, where I want to want to become a priest, that the LCMS was no longer where I wanted to be. Uh, I think one thing we should address is the question, and of course, it's something that we high church Anglicans always have to, to talk about. Well, why aren't you Roman Catholic? Why aren't you Eastern Orthodox? If you're going to yeah, believe in fun, authority, fun. why not go yeah. all the way? Okay. I'll start with Rome. Okay. Yeah, sure. Go. With Rome, I love our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. And yes, I'm calling them brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, I was, about to, I was about to say, like, um, I mean... I mean, you'd have Reformed people saying uh, Rome doesn't have the gospel. And obviously, as a Calvinist, uh, they are obliged to say that. But yeah, so, so I mean, after you've, you, you, you're done with this, I think we can go into who are our brothers and sisters. But be, be sure. that as may, you can. Yeah. Okay, so Rome has a valid priesthood, valid sacraments. They also have the first patriarch of the West, which is the Bishop of Rome. And by the way, I've studied church history enough to know that papal primacy is actually a historic doctrine of the church, okay? That yeah. the Bishop of Rome is not just the first among equals. I would say that the, that the Bishop of Rome, in a qualified sense, not the sense in which Vatican I says that the Bishop of Rome has immediate and universal jurisdiction, but I yeah. would say it's arguable that the Bishop of Rome had immediate universal jurisdiction or universal appellate jurisdiction in the first millennium of the, of the church. What that means is that if you have a case that needs appeal and an ecumenical council is not being used, you appeal to Rome, okay? Yeah. And what Rome says on that usually would be accepted, okay? Um, so kind of a de jure, kind of a law court of appeals in the church. And I do believe yeah. they had jurisdiction, but here's the thing. The... Roman documents, the dogmatic constitutions of Vatican I, say that the Roman pontiff can act on his own prerogative, he doesn't need the consent of the rest of the church, uh, and that he can speak infallibly on faith and morals. It's those oh, yeah. tiny papal infallibility, as, and Catholics will say, oh, you don't understand yeah. papal infallibility. Like, papal I mean... is a very nuanced thing. The Pope... You know, no well-read Roman Catholic believes that when Pope Francis orders a stake, that he infallibly orders a stake. No, they believe that three. there's kind of three qualifications for an ex-cathedra statement, which is speaking from the chair of Peter. When the Pope speaks as the pastor and teacher of all Christians, when he intends to find the conscience of the church, and when he is making a statement definitively on faith and morals, when he does those things, then... There is the possibility of an infallible pronouncement. But even this narrow view is something I cannot abide. Um, yeah. an, or, an Eastern Orthodox apologist by the name of Seraphim Hamilton said something I think is very true. We Anglicans and or Eastern Orthodox see the authority of the Bishop of Rome as fraternal, as brotherly, as maybe even yeah. paternal, okay? Yeah. But not as a king, not as a supreme leader. Yeah. You know, and um, so for me, it's it's the papacy, it's um, their view of the ability of a pronouncement on faith and morals is infallible. The fact that they make an ecumenical council dependent on papal ratification, um, as well as things like the treasury of merit, uh, they still do indulgences, by the way. Yeah. Um, there are soteriological disagreements that I have with Rome, but they're yeah. not as big as one might think. Okay, now let's go yeah. to the Orthodox. Yeah. The Orthodox, okay. The, the, my disagreement with the Eastern Orthodox is that they place the visible balance of the Church Catholic as being those who are in communion with the canonical patriarchates of the East. Okay, and something that in his book on the mystery of faith which is uh, a book by Metropolitan Hilarion Alfayev, which is, he is an Eastern Orthodox Metropolitan of the Russian Orthodox Church. He said, 
Now, he still believes the Eastern Orthodox Church is the true church, okay? So he's not going to deny that. But something he says is that the fathers nor the ecumenical councils ever placed a boundary on the visible bounds of the church. And he thinks he says for good reason. Because we, we can say that we know where the church is. We really can't say where it's not. Oh, and so yeah. when I look at the West, and when I look at high church Anglicanism in particular, when I see how orders have been preserved by, by faithful Anglicans, I'll put it that way, how the theology of the sacraments is there, and how the Anglican seeks to be part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church of Christ, not the whole. We Anglicans have never claimed to be in the, the, the only one true Church of Christ. We've claimed to be part of the one true Church of Christ. Um, so my disagreement with our Eastern brethren is that I believe Anglicans are part of the church. I believe they had valid sacraments. Um, and I, I don't believe that necessarily after the great schism that God abandoned Western Christianity. Um, so that's part of it. And so, yeah. you know, and so the reasons why, um, I am not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox is because I see Catholicity in a bit of a broader sense than Rome or the East, uh, and really Protest Protestants in a certain sense, but I don't define the visible bounds of the church to simply yeah. being, well, either those are who are in communion with the Bishop of Rome or those who are in communion with the canonical patriarchates of the East, because mm -hmm. I think the fullness of the apostolic church was greater than that in the first millennium, and was not conceived of as merely communion with this bishop of that or that bishop, but communion with the entire one Catholic church across the world. Okay. Yeah. So I mean that that, that that's a lot a lot to think through, and um, maybe we can we can tr try to address that question. I know that um, because we obviously and 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 it and it goes back to what what you said. And it's the reason why I'm bringing it up. You said I would never be able to join a church with contemporary worship, and I mean I'm with you on that. And some people that you know know me from you know, from that time of my life when I was charismatic, they, they probably obviously flooded with questions as well. Couldn't this be considered valid worship? Because, you know, people are really, you know, believing in Jesus. It seems to be, it seems to have positive effects on the morale of a lot of places and stuff. So, so why are we saying that these forms of worship are, are not the way we should be doing it? And uh, the, the other question is, at, at what point can we say we can't have fellowship with someone? And also, uh, at what point can we say, you know, I don't think I can call you a brother in Christ? What do you think is the basis? So, so the first question you ask is, is why isn't contemporary worship valid? Is, is that yeah. It? Yeah. Okay. Simple as this. It's a historical. Uh, the, church, the, the Church of All Ages which has a beautiful traditional hymnody, which needs a revival today, they didn't, they weren't singing Bethel, okay? Yeah. In the eighth century. <laughs> they had the, the holy liturgy. They had the, 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 the holy mass. Mm -hmm. And Protestant worship, particularly evangelical low church worship, because there's high church Presbyterians and Lutherans, yeah worship in, in very good continuity with the Church of All Ages. Um, but these more Pentecostal low church groups, broad church groups, if you will, even some Anglicans, unfortunately, um, the words of these songs are man-centered. They're emotional, yeah. and they do not breed piety for the Blessed Trinity. They just don't. Yeah. They don't teach you about the Incarnation. They don't yeah. teach you about the redemption of the cosmos through Christ. Um, but rather, it's about emotional experiences. It's about encountering God, like we talked about earlier. That's ultimately what it's about. It's about you need to be able to feel the Holy Spirit in you. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of answer that, kind of counter it by giving what C.S. Lewis said when he said, God is not obligated to give us any feeling. Yeah, He was talking about God's love. And Lewis said also that 
he might give us a feeling. I felt it. I, I've had tangible experiences with God before. I'm never going to deny that. But he's not obligated to give us a feeling. It's more of a knowledge and a faith and a trust that God is going to do what he has promised. And that takes us back to sacramental theology. So I would just say that any hymns and any set of worship that is not focused on the altar of Jesus Christ's body and blood in the Holy Eucharist as its center is yeah. not truly Catholic worship. Yeah. Um, the second question of, you know, at one point, can we not call someone a brother? Okay. Yeah. I'll kind of make two classes of brothers, and I'm sorry to... to do that and be so dichotomous. Yeah, feel like it's necessary. Anyone who is a baptized Christian in the name of the Trinity, in some sense, I can call a brother. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because they're at least affirming the God who's revealed in Holy Scripture and who has been believed in the church. Okay. And obviously, if they've received the sacrament of baptism, whether they believe it or not, they're in Christ. Okay? Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, what I mean by whether they believe it or not, whether they believe that the sacrament uh, regenerates and gives life. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and I would say, as, as a high church Anglican, that as long as I could make sure that they, could, they knew what the Eucharist was, the body and blood of Christ, if they were a baptized Christian, I don't have any right to deny them from partaking of the, of the Eucharist. Yeah. Because in the undivided church, any baptized Christian uh, had access to the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, now, um, and I, so that was brother in a much brother and sister in Christ in a much broader sense, yeah. brother in the sense of someone who weekly attends a pa parish with you, who you're really in communion with, um, would be someone that affirms seven sacraments, episcopacy, the seven ecumenical councils. I mean, it, when you get specific, it becomes much more complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, but the point where I cannot call someone a brother is if they start obstinately denying divine truth, if they start saying that baptism doesn't save and that I'm a heretic for believing it, or that the Eucharist is not the body and blood of Christ, and that I'm a heretic for believing that, okay? Um, and the reason why I think I can use brother in a broader sense is because, like I said, uh, St. Optatus, that contemporary yeah, yeah. St. Augustine who against the Donatists, even called the Donatists, the schismatics, he called them brothers. Now he yeah. says, you're not good brothers. Uh, you're like, you're like uh, Cain to Abel. You know, you, you hate your brother. You try to murder your brother. Uh, and and you're, you're kind of derelict in, in your, your call to be a part of the unity of the Christian family. Yeah. But you're still a brother. And so the point, obstinate, not just heresy, but obs a obstinate and schismatic spirit from someone else whom I am speaking to, whether it's online or in person or whatever have you, that's when I begin to say, I don't know if you're a brother in Christ, you know? Yeah. So, and, and this has even happened, not because they deny any fundamental dogma of the church, uh, but I've had, I was called a heretic by a set of a contest on Twitter the other day. And uh, for listeners who don't know, set of a contests are Roman Catholics who believe that there has been no valid pope since 1958. And yeah. basically, they believe that the one true church is only contained in a very small group of super traditionalist Tridentine Ro Latin mass uh Catholic churches, okay? They believe Francis is a heretic and apostate, uh, which there is something to be said for that. Um, but, you know, it's just in case someone doesn't know what a set of a contest is, that's what a... Sede means the chair. Vacante yeah. is empty. So the yeah, chair of Peter is empty. Um, yeah. I've also been called a schismatic by Orthodox. So, uh, does that surprise you? <laughs> no, no. Now, I have some brothers in Christ who are Orthodox who um, have said, you know, I don't agree with you being an Anglican, but I do in some sense see you as a brother. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. Um, so, to, to wrap up this whole series of questions, a brother... It can be taken in a broad sense as a baptized Christian who believes in the Trinity. 
in a much narrower sense in those who are truly in communion with you. And then it kind of stops when they're either obstinately a heretic or have a schismatic spirit. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just want to want to say that, I mean, I don't uh, just for those who are listening, I don't say this with a with, with, uh, like with a flippant attitude and stuff is that I don't think I think w- w- the moment someone tells me that things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, that they are not the things that Jesus says about it, I'm going to start putting you into this you phasing into heresy because it is, uh, I mean, we both spoke about it. It is a practical denial of the incarnation. If God has made physical means, a means of saving us, denying that is denying the gospel. And I'm not the first one who says that the historic church says that. And, you know, you know, I think it's funny, uh, you know, just mentioning uh, like what, what, what you mentioned, you really think, that what you like when they call us heretics and i think it's kind of funny this is these beliefs in baptism just being a symbol and all of that this is so such a new uh, a new teaching in the history of of the church it's christians calling those people the heretics now they say oh you heretics and i mean i just find it funny and i mean hello uh, like i mean we were here first like yeah so i just want to back up what you said about uh, the 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 two kinds of brothers i think hebrews does speak about those kind of people um beware brothers lest perhaps there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living god and that's hebrews 312 uh so there there clearly were people who were brothers in an objective sense um, but they were rejecting the grace that was given to them in holy baptism. So, it's yeah. Like, yeah. Um, uh, in Galatians, when St. Paul says that, you know, who has bewitched you and called you out of the grace of God into another gospel, which is really not another gospel at all, uh, and, but he still treats the Galatians, even though he sees them as guilty of some kind of apostasy or even heresy. Yeah. Um, he still calls that he still addresses them as part of the, the church of Christ. Um, yeah. But he deal obviously in Galatians, he deals with them very severely. Um, and it's kind of what he's like, what he says in Galatians three, that whoever has been baptized into Christ is put on Christ. And so whoever has received baptism in the name of the Trinity with water um, is a Christian. There, there is one that, thing that I, yeah. They may not be a good Christian, okay? They might be a systematic Christian. They might be a heretical Christian. Um, But they're still a Christian. It's baptism is the mark by which, visible mark, uh, and obviously a facious sacrament, by which one is a Christian. It's kind of like the the analogy that St. Augustine uses, that if you're a Roman soldier who has the SPQR tattoo, on your your shoulder yeah. and that marks you out as an, it's the mark by which you're seen as as a um roman soldier if you desert the roman army you're still technically a roman soldier because you have that mark but now you're deserted yeah. you're a bad soldier so in the same way you can be a, a baptized christian but you can be um you can be a bad one you can be a heretical christian and you can be an apostate as well so that's yeah. kind of where I would I would take that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I mean, I, I, there there was something that I wanted to say. Uh, yeah. Like I mean, I I'm probably going to get it as I as I was speaking about this, but yeah. So I mean, these are the kinds of uh, like indications that we we give to who are in and who are out. And as N.T. Wright says, I think anyone who believes in Jesus, we then have the right to sit at the same table. But obviously, if you go on denying what Christianity is, you are a, wait for it, a heretic. You are a stone-cold heretic. And nothing that you say about your subjective experiences is going to stand up to to the scrutiny of 2,000 years of a church that's always been there. I mean, it's just not. Um, your your new theology, it's just not gonna 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 stand up to that. And I yeah, I find it fascinating that we have people who think like that. And yeah, 
so I mean, I think we've covered basically everything that we had to cover. I mean, it, well, was there anything else that that we were supposed to speak about? No. Um, I don't know. I think if I can just give kind of a last comment, it would be sure. this: if you are an inquirer into Anglicanism, really of any form, but especially of high church Anglicanism slash Anglo-Catholicism, the two terms are really interchangeable. And you are thinking about converting because you think it is a valid apostolic Catholic option. Don't do it lightly. Don't do it uh, hastily. Yeah. Read, read the Anglican divines. Read the church fathers. Um, read Holy Scripture uh, more than any of that. And... And, and pray. The reason why I say that is just because I feel as though there are so many people, uh, and I don't, I don't want to sheep steal from our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. Yeah. But I know there are Roman Catholics who are disaffected and who are probably pretty close to leaving Christianity because of what's going on with the papacy. If that is the case, please give us a try. Do not mm -hmm. feel obligated to come to one of our churches, but we would happily receive you and give you the, the body and blood of Christ. We would receive you into the arms of the church, um, and, and obviously you're already a Christian. Or Eastern Orthodox who are disaffected because of what's going on between Constantinople and Moscow, which is a subject we don't yeah. have time to talk about. Yeah. Um, like I said, if you are a, a Orthodox or a Catholic in good faith, you really don't need to come to us, okay? Yeah. Um, but if you are one that is disaffected, that is close to saying, well, I'm just going to throw out my hands and quit. Don't give in just yet. Give Anglo-Catholics a chance to show you that we are part of that one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And give us a chance to, to show you that, that we can, can sustain your life. And obviously, if you're, if you're a Protestant or even a high church Lutheran or evangelical, uh, and you're looking into us as well, come with the same mindset that, that we're going to, to greet you and treat you as a brother uh, and, and that we wish to uh, be in union with all Christians. So that's just kind of my last thing is that if people are considering us to take it carefully, not to do it hastily, do it for the right reasons, but also know that, that, that we are here in case we are needed. So, yeah, um, that's, I think that's a, that's a wrap for me. So uh, if you guys liked this episode and stuff, I, you guys can get in touch with Christopher. You can stalk him. I mean, I don't know. I, I probably shouldn't say that. You can stalk him on Facebook if you really want to speak. He's a nice guy. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's all from me. So I, I intend to do another episode after this on another brother who entered Anglicanism around the same time I did, um, Caleb Mullins, whom I think Chris knows. Uh, very, so yeah. very good person close personal friend i look forward to listening to that to that episode okay so i just i'm just gonna say a quick liturgical prayer and then we can uh stop the recording so oh comforter the spirit of truth who art everywhere present and fill us all things treasury of good gifts and giver of life come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain O gracious one amen amen so